Hello and welcome to the very first episode of True Crime in a Van. My name is Ella Bumgartner. Thank you for tuning in today. Uh, This is my very first episode, so bear with me, but I got a very crazy story to tell you guys, so let's get into it. Today I'm going to be talking about the Weepy Voice Killer. He was terrorizing the streets of Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota from 1980 to 1982, viciously attacking women with ice picks. Um, And also, if you don't know, an ice pick is basically, it just looks like a flathead screwdriver and you just use it like to pick off a huge piece of ice, I think. Um, I did not know what those were and I figured it like it, it came to me in my research. So I just thought maybe other people would not know. Um, And he also used screwdrivers. So he coined the name the Weepy Voice Killer from his whimpering 911 calls to confess what he had done after committing these heinous crimes. Um, but to be noted, he never turned himself in, and once he eventually gets caught, he does not confess. Well, we'll get to that, but he does not initially confess. So, like, he's confessing but not confessing. It makes no sense. So, Minneapolis became the only main metro area between Chicago and Portland. Um, being located on the Mississippi River, it obviously thrived. So, Hennepin Avenue is somewhere we're going to be a lot um, today. And it was the first road to actually ever cross the Mississippi River in 1855 with the completion of the Hennepin Avenue Suspension Bridge, which I just thought was the coolest thing ever. Um, So while from photos of Minneapolis, it looks like an idyllic metropolitan hub, and to an extent it is, I love Minneapolis and it's my home, Um, it does need to be noted the extensive history of racism, violence, and corruption found in specifically the Minneapolis Police Department, including the historically warm embrace of numerous Ku Klux Klan chapters throughout the 20th century, and yes, that's the 1900s if you're like dumb like me and don't know that. Um, I also found an ad from 1922 literally in the newspaper for the Ku Klux Klan. I should not be surprised by this, but I was. It's just so blatant. Like, what the fuck? Um, So December 31st, 1980, it's New Year's Eve. Karen Potak, Karen S. Potak, was a University of Wisconsin Stevens Point student who was in um, the cities to celebrate New Year's Eve with some of her friends and some of her sisters. Around 1 a.m., Karen got into a little fight with some of the members of the party that she had gone there with, and she decided to leave the club that they were with, that they were at, um, not even stopping to get her jacket, presumably from coat check. Um, unfortunately for Karen, the weeby voice killer happened to drive by while she was walking home in nothing but her red dress. So he pulled over and asked her if she needed to warm up, you know, since it was December in Minnesota, all she's wearing a dress, I guarantee you she's freezing cold. So she climbs in and he starts driving, claiming it's to get the heater going. This is valid, honestly. Um, if you've ever lived in the cold, you know, traditionally what happens is as soon as you get to school or work or wherever you're going that's finally when your heater starts blowing off hot air um that's a legit explanation but he was already driving so it wasn't his car already warm whatever so they arrive at his former place of work malmberg manufacturing company um the parking lot has like two businesses on either side a train track to the north and houses to the south there's a lot of like underbrush and stuff it'd be good spot for a clubhouse to be honest Um, but there's also a lot of evidence of, like, homeless activity in this area. The vibes were super spooky, and, like, my hairs were standing up for sure. Um, it's probably, like, very dark. It's nighttime, maybe, like, a light on at a business, but I guarantee you it was, like, super dark. Yeah. 
so he stops he gets out he goes to his trunk and he gets a tire iron this is a different weapon than one of the ones i first talked about but i think he uses this one just out of convenience basically so he approaches the passenger door and tells karen to get out she obviously says no so he starts bludgeoning her in his car before dragging her out and throwing her in a snowbank where he hits her some more cracking her skull like brain exposed type shit before leaving um being in the cold here for sure helped her because as i'm about to say she survives um so being in the cold for sure helped like slow down and preserve her brain so like i guess that was good um so at 3 a.m about two hours later 911 receives a call saying there's a girl hurt here and they basically hang up i don't know if he said where or how they got there but paramedics and police arrive on the scene just after 3 a.m. and rush Karen to the hospital. She lost all her memory of the incident and could not provide any police any information. Um, that sucks, but obviously, like, it's better that she lived. Um, the case goes cold, no pun intended, and nothing comes of this. Uh, Karen now lives back in Wisconsin, closer to her family, in a legit beautiful area, so nothing but good vibes to her. I hope she's happy and thriving. Um, so five months later, it is June 3rd, 1980. It is the summer now. Um, on this Wednesday, Kimberly Wilma Compton, she's 18 years old. She arrives in the cities on a bus from Pupin, Wisconsin, which is a small town on the Mississippi River. And it was the home of Laura Ingalls Wilder, which I think is fun, formerly iconic, currently probably problematic. I don't know. Um, yeah, she lived there, though. So Kimberly was born on February 28th, 1963, and grew up with her grandparents and cousin Sherry, who was six years older, but still like her best friend. It's very much giving Ash and Elena from the Morbid podcast. Um, they shared a bedroom and a dog that was named Patches Love. Um, when Kimberly was 13 and Sherry was 19, their grandmother died, leaving Kimberly to bounce between foster homes and family members. I don't know where her grandpa was, why she didn't just live with him. Maybe he was already passed away. I have no idea. So Sherry, the she was 19 years old, her cousin, she had a job and an apartment at this time, as well as the intention of having Kimberly come and live with her, but it never panned out. Something Sherry says that she regrets to her day. She's been very outspoken about all this, so like... Love you, Sherry. Um, May 15th, Kimberly graduates just three weeks. May 15th, Kimberly graduated. And just three weeks later, she was on a bus to the cities. Um, she was full of hopes and dreams of what her future could be here. She wanted to like get a job and follow her passions and thrive in the city like so many people do. Kimberly dropped off her stuff in Locker 750 at the bus station and headed to the iconic Mickey's Diner a railroad car restaurant in the heart of St. Paul referred, uh, what mm, okay, featured in Mighty Ducks and Jingle All the Way. It is nationally regarded for its food. Nothing was unusual at Mickey's Diner this afternoon, except for the fact that the Weeby Voice Killer was having coffee here at the same time as Kimberly, a fact that would turn the tides of Kimberly's life. The Weeby Voice Killer is later quoted saying, Quote, we started talking and I told her I'd show her around town. I thought I'd drive by the river and maybe we'd see the Delta Queen or have a picnic, but in 15 minutes, she was dead. Within an hour of her arriving in town, three young boys found Kimberly's body just two miles away from the diner she was last seen at. The location of her dump site was along a bike slash walking path that runs right next to Interstate 35E. There are houses that back right up to this trail with a steep 
hill full of trees and it was for sure less than like 50 yards to the back doors of these homes but standing there in the summertime it feels so much further through the trees with all the foliage and everything so to get to the location that i believe she was found at um you have to park your car get out and like walk a little bit to get into the trees and out of like off the road um this makes me think that she was still alive potentially like walked up there lugging that much dead weight kind of like uphill without being noticed would be like very hard to do especially considering the boys found her at less than an hour um after the she was at mickey's diner and it was also like a very poppin neighborhood when i was there um like young residential there's like a park right down the road probably like people around obviously um so kimberly had the locker key and an epilepsy patient identification card in her pocket. She had epilepsy, um, which helped the police identify her. She had been stabbed 61 times with an ice pick, mostly in the abdomen and inside of her thighs. Every vital organ was punctured. Police also said there was a mark around her neck, indicating that she had been strangled with a rope or a shoelace. This would be a little bit of a change in MO, but it was also his first murder. So he could have been like experimenting and also been scared that stabbing was not going to be enough since um, the previous attack bludgeoning had not murdered her. Um, she had also been sexually assaulted. The intense, the intensity of the murder pointed to it being someone she knew, but that was a dead end. Police then looked into other cases that involved an ice pick as the murder weapon. That was also a dead end. The only clue the police had was a phone call made to 911 that was made from a payphone close to Mickey's diner just after the murder where the caller said, God damn, will you find me? I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. If somebody dies with a red shirt on, it's me note the red theme that we're connecting here um again a few days later he called from a different payphone saying quote i'll try not to kill anyone else i i couldn't help it i don't know why i stabbed her i'm so upset about it and saying he would turn himself in which like i said he did not do all right so it is now seven weeks later it is july 21st 1982 the end of july it is an overcast, rainy Wednesday. Kathleen Diane Greening is buzzing around her house, getting ready to go for breakfast on a day trip to Mackinac. Mackinac? Mackinac? I don't know how you say that. Mackinac, we'll say, island with her best friend, Carol Kellogg. Her house is a quaint, cream-colored stucco home built in 1933 in a neighborhood nestled between golf courses and shopping right right directly between Minneapolis and St. Paul. It is so cute. Like, I would live there in a heartbeat. You would never, ever, ever think that what I'm about to tell you happened in this neighborhood. Like, if you were just driving through it, you'd be like, heck no. So Kathleen was born on March 16th, 1949, making her 33 years old, and she was a teacher. So when Carol arrived to Kathleen's house the morning of the 21st, there is no answer when she knocks on the door, so she tries the knob and it opens. She begins searching the house room to room as she calls for Kathleen. I imagine the tension is building as she goes each room and does not see her. Like, I don't, personally, my mind always jumps to the worst case scenario. Like, somebody texts me like, oh, can I call you later? I'm like, because something horrible happened. Like, I, or if somebody doesn't answer the phone, I'm like, the worst thing happened. So I can only imagine, like, the tension that would be building. And then it is the worst case scenario. The bathroom door is ajar and the lights on and Kathleen is laying face up in the bathtub with her head under the faucet and her knees bent under her. 
So she was determined to have died of drowning and her death was ruled an accident. Um, her estranged ex-husband was the only suspect they ever looked into, but that was a dead end. Um, the fact that they ruled this an accident is just crazy to me. Um, it is just my humble opinion. And obviously I'm not like a coroner or anything, but I do not know how somebody could physiologically get themselves in that position accidentally and then be unable to get themselves out of that position and not drown um, if there was not somebody like holding them and doing this to them. So I'm not really sure how that happened, but whatever. So the Weepy Boys killer is not on the radar at all for this case. And as you can tell, it was extremely outside of his MO and only his second murder. So like not much to tie it to. It's and completely different from any other crime that we've already looked at or any other crime that we are going to look at. And there's not really like an explanation for this. If you asked me, I would say it was probably um, convenient. He likes things that are convenient. You'll see that it's like a trend throughout this. Um, it's very much just like wrong place, wrong time. So he was probably just driving by, saw that there was only one lady at this house and decided to do it. So, yeah, that's that with Kathleen. So we're going to jump two weeks now. As you'll notice, our timeline is getting closer and closer together. The cooling off period is really slowing down. Key traits of a serial killer here. Two weeks later, August 5th, 1982, Barbara Virginia Taylor Simmons. I love that name. I just have to say that. Barbara Virginia Taylor Simmons, like that is Miss America, you know, that's a great name. She's at the iconic Hexagon Bar in Southeast Minneapolis. All these people are at like really notable places. Like it is so weird to me. Um, I guess it's a hot spot to be. Uh, the Hexagon Bar has since been burned down uh, in the demonstrations that followed the murder of the heinous murder of George Floyd between 2 and 3 a.m. on May 29th, 2022. Um, sad to see it go, but, I mean, had to happen. Barbara was born on July 25th, 1942, making her 40 years old, and she was a nurse living in South Minneapolis at the time. She was described as caring, laid back, and knew everybody in the neighborhood, so it makes sense for her to uh, be hanging out at a place like the Hexagon, which was also described as a fun place to, like, hear good music and hang out. So the Weepy Voice Killer was unfortunately also at the bar this afternoon. He actually asked Barbara for a cigarette and they chatted together for a while, like publicly, before he offered her a ride home. Barbara mentioned to a bartender and a waitress, quote, I hope this guy's okay because I just need a ride home, end quote. They also testified to seeing her with a white male that night. That's just, it's, once again, it's everybody's worst nightmare. Like, you don't suspect somebody is actually going to do this to you. But it happened. It's so devastating. Um, another waitress that night said that he remembered the man, or waiter that night, sorry. Or maybe it was a, oh, I'm, I can't read. Another witness that night said he remembered the man at the end of the bar making weird faces at him. So he, like, took note of it and was able to give a very detailed description of the man later identified as the weepy voice killer period good on you good on you you see something weird going on take note of it just put that in your back pocket in case you need it okay so a newspaper delivery boy found barbara's body the next morning walking along the mississippi river she was found beaten and stabbed 
Her blood was pooled next to a stump and her body was like dragged over an embankment where it was caught on trees, preventing it from falling, from falling into the river. Thank goodness, because otherwise we would have probably never found her body. Um, probably thought the blood was like an animal or something and just not ever known. So thank goodness. Um, but him doing this, trying to get rid of the body, it showed that he was experienced now and it's not his first kill. So her wounds were described as, quote, round and being made with a screwdriver or an ice pick. Uh, she was stabbed 106 times and sexually assaulted as well. So after digging through violent offenders, they matched the description. Minneapolis, to, Minneapolis Police Department was able to have the hexagon staff and witness identify the man Barbara had been seen with in a photo lineup. So when staff identified him, the detective looked into his file and found that at some point he had assaulted a woman, we'll get to this later on when this happened, wearing a red robe, and he had made the comment, quote, oh, I like your nice red robe. He then reached out and fondled her. <sighs> Gives me the heebie-jeebies. I hate that so much. Um, but good on that woman for reporting it, because otherwise we would not have that right now. So this was further evidence as Barbara was also wearing a red jacket. If you'll remember, we had the red dress, red jacket, red, other red jacket, uh, the assault and Barbara's. So after this, 911 receives a call saying, quote, please don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. I killed more people. I'll never make it to heaven, end quote. Yeah, you're damn right you're not going to make it into heaven. Stop murdering innocent women. Don't ever murder innocent women in the first place. Just leave them alone. Don't harass them either and fondle them. Ew, stop. Um, I think that 911 call is like probably the most uh, identifiable, an identifiable one to hear. Um, that's the one that I'm like, I've heard that one before. It sounds familiar to me. So if you've heard this case before, you've probably heard that one. Um, so after this, police began surveillance on their suspect, waiting to be able to pin Barbara's murder on him and have some like concrete evidence since they just had circumstantial. So they followed him as he left his apartment the night of August 20th. Um, Barbara's murder happened on the 5th. So it's been about 15 days, like two weeks. Um, they follow him two weeks later, but they lose him as he is on his way to Hennepin Avenue. So the Weepy Voice Killer arrives at Hennepin Avenue on the evening of August 20th, like I said, just 14 days later. Um, it is 1982. It was a hot 80 degrees with clear skies when the Weepy Voice Killer pulled up next to 19-year-old Denise Janet Williams and offered her $100 to, quote, have some fun. So Denise was born September 26, 1962, making her, like I said, 19 years old at this time. Not much is known about Denise's life. Um, the only thing I could find is that she had been a sex worker, apparently, since she was 13 years old. Um, the next time that she's on the radar is November 26, 1981, when she's like 18. She's arrested for aggravated forgery and released on December 22nd on unsupervised probation. Um, so now it's like six months later. August from her probation. I'm assuming she's still on it. So the weepy voice killer and Denise drove to his St. Paul apartment where he gave her $40 before promising her the other 60 once the sex act was performed. 
Afterwards, he offered to give her a ride back. She was assuming to head up an avenue and going to give her the rest of money there, but he had other plans she was unaware of, so she accepted the ride. On the way, he made conversation about really normal things like his sexual fantasies, giving her, quote, the creeps. Now, if you are having consensual conversations about sexual fantasies, great. Love, open, honest communication about those things consensually. But if this is unconsensual and clearly giving her the creeps, like, ick, no, 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 no. So they pull into a dead-end parking lot off of East Hennepin and Coolidge Street in Minneapolis. It's eerily, eerily similar to the parking lot that this man attacked Karen in at the very beginning. Um, Two industrial buildings on either side, some trash cans, like maybe a car, train track in the north, uh, neighborhood to the south. Like, not much going on, but they're almost exactly mirror each other, but in completely different locations. It really creeped me out. Um, so the weepy voice killer parked a car telling her, quote, some ass, grass, or gas, no one rides for free, which is the quote that has, like, really stuck with me and definitely given me such an ick for this guy. Like, are you joking? You already offered her the ride and are bringing her back to where you got her. Like, the audacity of this man to say that she owes him. Like, fuck you. Absolutely not. So Denise, like a good girl, reaches for the door handle, trying to get out, obviously, but he grabs her left wrist, pulling her towards him and into the Phillips screwdriver he had waiting to stab her. As he continues to stab her, she starts fighting, biting and kicking, trying to get away from him before finding a glass pop bottle on the floor and smashing it over his head. Good job, Denise. As he screams about her being, quote, just like the rest of some other broads, end quote, fuck you, she opened the door and rolled out with him, like, landing on top of her. He continues to stab her, and she starts screaming. Good girl. Her screams were heard by one Douglas Panning, He and he still lives and did at the time, like, about a block south of the parking lot that Denise and the weepy voice killer were in. So Douglas witnessed Denise on the ground with a man on top of her stabbing her. Douglas approached and touched his shoulder, startling the weepy voice killer. He jumped up and chased Douglas back down the alleyway where Douglas continued running all the way back home to 911 because they didn't have cell phones. Oh my God, your adrenaline must be running like no other. That would be absolutely terrifying. Um, but good job for not like having the bystander effect and just like, I mean, I guess he knew he was, she was stabbing her, but like, not ignoring it. Good job, Douglas. Um, the weepy voice killer walked back towards Denise and his vehicle. How scary would that be laying on the ground, like about to bleed out, watching your killer walk back towards you? Um, but he just gets in and drives away like nothing happens. So obviously police arrive like right away. And Denise tells him that her name is Mary Gross and that she was hitchhiking a ride to White Bear Lake when the man attacked her out of fear for being prosecuted as a sex worker because she was on probation um valid valid denise um so she was rushed to the hospital she had 15 stab wounds to her abdomen and chest and her liver and lung were punctured so while she's getting fixed up at the hospital back at the weepy voice killer's apartment he's trying to clean himself up you know she was fighting back and he realized that he had big cuts to his head, hands, and cheeks, as well as a pretty bad nose injury. Good job, Denise. And so he was like, oh, shit, my injuries are too bad. I cannot take care of these. He probably like, needs stitches and stuff. So he calls 911, 
has them come and take him to the hospital, telling them he had been beat up. Once again, the audacity of this man knows no bounds. So even the Minneapolis Police Department, surprisingly, could connect these dots between this man who, with these injuries, injuries who just showed up, and the woman who had been attacked just hours earlier, arresting him and charging him with the attempted murder of Denise and the assault of Douglas. As of this day, the only trace of Denise I could find were her police records, which are that she was arrested four years later after this on December 17th, 1986, for theft over $250. And since that, it's just been a laundry list of convictions, with her most recent being May 30th, 2018, for loitering with intent to solicit any prohibited act by law. Um, she was sentenced to 90 days in a community workhouse, one year on probation. And then June 21st, 2019, the court found that she had violated her probation and a warrant was signed for her arrest. September 17th, she was sentenced for violating her probation, probation again to another 90 days. So I hope all is well. I hope she's doing well. I haven't heard from her since then. It's been about like three years. So good vibes to her. So that is the last crime we're going to talk about today, which brings me to who is the weepy voice killer? His name is Paul Michael Stephanie, the notorious three first names. He was born September 8th, 1944, in Austin, Minnesota, on a five-acre plot of land with his family. Austin is a pretty small town in southeast Minnesota, just under two hours south of the cities. Um, It's home of the Spam Museum, uh, and also, like, the Hormel. Like, they have a big plant, and the headquarters are there. They own Spam. A state park, and one of the 2015, it was named in 2015, one of the best small cities in America. Uh, the Hormel plant also notably had one of the longest labor strikes in the 1980s, lasting 10 months, which received national attention with the governor calling in the National Guard, ick. Um, a movie was re- released about the strikes in 1980 and received Best Documentary Feature at the 63rd Academy Awards. Whoop whoop. I haven't seen it, but it probably is really good, so check it out. Um, the statistics in... Austin, as of 2010, were 86.8% white, 15.4% Latinx, and 3% African American. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright also notably built his second largest home here in the Usonian style of architecture in 1950. You know I'm a Midwest girl, so I am a Frank Lloyd Wright stan, so I just wanted to add that in there. Um, Paul was the second of 10 children, and something interesting that I found, according to a Murder Mile podcast blog post, where they broke down a random selection of 29 British serial killers, which, wow, there are that many in Britain? Um, it's so small. How do they have that many? Um, but apparently, you are twice as likely to be a serial killer if you were the middle or eldest child. And over the half of those subjects came from families with mixed gender and ages of siblings, as opposed to a single sibling or a single sex of sibling, which does align with him being the second. So if you are the middle or eldest, you're twice as likely he's the second child. And if you have lots of brothers and sisters, then you are over 50% of them had that. But again, this is probably more like, correlation rather than causation so like yeah but just wanted to add that in there because I thought it was interesting um so Paul's mother remarried when he was three and his stepfather and by extension his entire family became very 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 devout Catholics Paul claimed that his father was abusive and would smack their heads and send them flying if him or his siblings did anything out of line um 
I couldn't find anything from any of his other siblings, which you probably wouldn't find anything from me either if this was my brother. But all we have is this one quote of him saying that. I don't know if it's true or not, but I mean, it is what, the 1940s? So I would believe that that is not a far-fetched idea. So in 1962, he graduates and moves to the Minneapolis-St. Paul, the cities. He could not hold down a job, and he bounced between things like a hospital janitor, a shipping clerk, unloading trucks at a steel mill, and a shipping company. Um, Paul claimed this was due to epilepsy, but there's no factual evidence of this. But this is a very... um, The real reason, in my opinion, is more along the lines of him suffering from some mental health issues. Um, But interestingly enough... uh, was it Kimberly? She did have epilepsy. So interesting that she did and was thriving. He was like, I have epilepsy. I can't have a job and not thriving. So on June 20th, 1970, Paul married Beverly Jean Leiter. And shortly after that, they welcomed a daughter. I could not find any other information about her or Beverly and good on you. Get as far as you can, ladies. By the mid-1970s, Paul was divorced and did not ever see his daughter. It's unclear if Beverly wanted that or he wanted that, but good on ya. Beverly, if you wanted that, keep this man away probably would be a safe call to make. Um, in 1977, he was fired from his job at Malmberg Manufacturing Company. If you remember, that's where he brought uh, Karen, the very first victim, So after he is fired is when his first arrest for assaulting that woman in the red dress, if you remember, takes place. Um, So this was like his trigger was being fired. So all of the stressors in the 70s point to the violent outbursts that he has in the early 80s. After his arrest, he does try and get his life back together, getting a new job and even entering into a relationship with a Syrian woman who was never identified. Just before 1980, she decides to go back to Syria and accept an arranged marriage and good call babe you made the right decision get out of there um however this feels like another huge betrayal for paul and another trigger for the violent acts that he ends up committing so a few days after denise that's that's everything on paul a few days after denise's attack um she ends up giving police her real name but continued her false story about hitchhiking Just before trial, about two years later, Denise does tell the prosecutor that she lied about hitchhiking and had actually gone to Stephanie's apartment the night of the stabbing and had engaged in an act of prostitution with him. Paul was convicted of attempted murder in the second degree for attacking Denise, assault in the second degree for attacking Douglas, and first degree murder of Barbara. That was everything that they could connect him to. So at trial, Denise testified about the events and she admitted that she had lied about the hitchhiking and everything. She admitted she had lied in the past and often gave false names when arrested, but like, hello, she was clearly participating in survival sex work. Like, she's doing her best, and there's just a lot of like toxic masculinity. I think that's probably got her into this position. So just like, get out of here with that. Um, yeah, this was all brought up in cross examination, which is just like disgusting, and I cannot believe, like, I can believe it, but just like, fuck off. That does not negate what happened to her. There was a lot of debate about whether or not technology that could allegedly confirm that the distorted voices on the 911 calls were Paul's could be admitted um, as evidence or not in the trial. And ultimately, it was not allowed. Uh, It was like brand new technology that had never worked. I do not know if it 
works now. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, his ex-wife and his sister, I believe it was, also like testified that it was him in the calls, but they still just could not like hardcore prove that he had committed these other crimes, so he was never like convicted of them. Um, although Paul had no problem confessing over the phone, like I said at the beginning, he could not bring himself to confess directly to police out of fear or thinking of prison life. Um, Paul was sentenced to an executed sentence of 203 months for attempted murder, double the presumptive sentence, and to a consecutive executive sentence of 21 months for assault. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what I found. He was sentenced for a really long time, is what matters. Okay, um... Don't ask me to explain that. I can't. On August 20th, 1985, Paul appealed his, and this is going to be a quote from the court records, conviction of attempted second degree murder and assault in the second degree. He contends a host of errors either individually or cumulatively denied him a fair trial or improperly enlarged his sentence, end quote. Don't know what that means. His appeal is denied, LOL. It didn't matter. In December 1997, Paul found out that he had skin cancer really, really bad, and that it had already spread through his whole body, and he had less than a year to live. And Paul, I would like to introduce you to a good friend of mine I like to call a karma. So with his death sentence, he decided he had to clear up his conscience to have any shot into getting into heaven. You know, um... We'll talk about it later on, why he thinks this. So he sat down with detectives and went over the attacks of Denise and Karen, as well as the murders of Kimberly, Kathleen, and Barbara. The only thing he asked for in return was a picture of his mother's grave, which they did give him. Um, so I've got a couple quotes here that kind of explain uh, his confessions. So first quote, detectives believed Paul made his phone call because of his parents' religious instructions when he was a child. After sin comes confession, but the investigators and prosecutors were also skeptical of Paul's motivations for coming clean at last to them. He was not a man trying to ease others' pain. He saw They saw a, cr- a man crying crocodile tears, trying to grasp one last shred of power. According to criminologist Nicola Malicia, the final stage of a serial killer's predatory cycle is the satisfaction phase, the period after the murder when they feel momentarily powerful, filling the void of inadequacy that led to the crime in the first place. That was from Serial Killers podcast episode, The Weepy Wars Killer. Another quote from Morbidology. Um, I'd rather go to the grave, Paul is quoted as saying, I'd rather go to the grave knowing this is all taken care of and off my chest, Stephanie said. To this day, I can't believe it. I wake up in the morning thinking and hoping and dreaming all this. But then I say, no, Paul, you're still in jail. I don't know what to do except say I wish I could turn back the clock. He was also quoted saying, uh, this is a quote from Oxygen. He also divulged uh, that after one of the murders, he went to a Catholic church and sat in the back of the pew and cried. Mother always told me, if something hurts, you go to God. Um, In subsequent interviews with the media, Stephanie offered no insight into his motivations behind the slangs, but he said there was a voice in his head that told him, Paul, it's time to kill. And those last two are both from Oxygen. Um, uh, Yeah, Paul, you are still in jail and you cannot turn back the clock and you do need to live with what you did. And I hope that it haunts you every single day even into the grave and the beyond and the universe i hope you're haunted by this um it's just pathetic he's so pathetic that's really all i have to say about that so paul died less than six months after his confessions on june 12 1998 
Um, I think he apologized, obviously, on account of the quote of his mother telling him, if something hurts, you go to God. Deep down, he knew this was wrong and sinful and his mother would be disappointed. But he also had a compulsion that he obviously couldn't help, like something was wrong up in his brain if something was allegedly telling him to kill. Um, He was going to God. He was trying to confess. And when he called 911, he was trying to confess. But he actually did not feel bad because he did not stop. He did not get help. He did not actually confess when it counted. Um, I also just thought it was funny that his first three victims letter all started with the letter K. His first three victims names all started with the letter K. I'm having such a hard time talking tonight. Um, which is obviously a coincidence, but like, I just thought it was funny as well as pun intended, the red thread through the story of something between everybody wearing the color red. I don't know, maybe it set him off or something, but yeah. So There's no doubt that religious trauma played also a role in Paul's horrendous crimes. Religious trauma syndrome is defined as a response to prolonged abuse of indoctrination from a controlling religious community, as well as the act of leaving this religious community. Paul's life growing up in a very strict, sometimes physically, I'm sure verbally and emotionally abusive Catholic home is not to blame for him hurting this woman, but it could be a factor to explain why he did it. His calls to 911 are a huge pointer to religious trauma syndrome he was literally making his confession like i said like they do every week at the catholic church so he could free himself from that sin he had committed when you go through um communion or confirmation or whatever it is in the catholic church you do confession like once a week or once a month or whatever like that's literally what you do is exactly what he did it checks out um yeah, he was trying to wash away his sins. Like, you know, you tell them what they did, they tell you to do a couple hair on Larry's. That's what he was trying to do. Uh, so although Paul was most certainly lying about having epilepsy, it is a very real neurological disorder, I just wanted to say, causing unexpected seizures for about 3.4 million people in America alone. Um, every time a life is unfairly taken from this earth, it does not just affect the person who's being hurt. It is a ripple effect. It hurts more people than you could ever count. These women went through what we are all so terrified of. And at the end of the day, I'm glad that all their families were able to get closure and answers about their loved ones. Paul needed serious help, but there are no excuses for the torture he has permanently inflicted on countless people. I know the universe has given back to him what he gave to it. So thank you guys for listening to the very first episode of True Crime in a Van. Please like, subscribe. You don't like, we're not on YouTube. What? Review, subscribe, rate, um, follow the social media. I'll have everything linked down below. Tell your friends about it. Share things. Do what you do. You know the drill. So thanks, guys. Bye.